go to the Lord in prayer. We have Genesis 22 in front of us. We're going to do part of that chapter today, finishing it next week. But uh, it's an important chapter, so let's give our full attention to it now as we go into study. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, that I'm back, and thank you that uh, we're here. And thank you, Father, that we have the legacy of Oak Hill Bible Church teaching the Bible, studying it regularly. And more than just that, Father, thank you for the legacy of a church that desires to live it. We are imperfect in all that we do. But that doesn't mean, Father, we shouldn't strive to seek a life that reflects you and is more honoring than it was before we knew you and that we would mature in our faith because of what we learned. These are the values, Father, that you have asked your children to represent to the world of knowing you and following you in faith. And we ask, Father, that what we study, and as always as we come into this time every week and we put ourselves at your feet studying your word, we always ask the same thing, Father. We ask that what we're learning is intended to grow us into the likeness of Christ. We ask that we would have hearts that want to hear and listen. And we ask, Father, that you would do work in our hearts through the Spirit to convict us and bring to mind things in our life that are not yet where they should be, not yet right with you. Let our story of uh, Abraham be that example for how a man or woman may walk in faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Bible calls Abraham the father of faith. We've mentioned that here, I know, on a couple of occasions in the past. The father of faith. That's quite an accolade when you think about it. Of all those in the Bible who might be associated with faith, Abraham gets that title. In chapter 22... We're going to study a story of Abraham and of his faith, one that most people think of first when they think of Abraham. Abraham is such an icon because he's a man who does things we can't imagine doing ourselves sometimes. Abraham was the example Paul uses when he speaks about uh, the way salvation has always been by faith, never by works. And of all those Paul could use to exemplify that truth, he found Abraham the most appropriate. Abraham himself had a remarkable life. He saw God up to this point now seven different times to make an appearance and give these remarkable promises. This guy has a life that's enviable from every side that you might imagine. And along the way, as he's learned to be the man that God is calling him to be, he's taken some bold steps of faith. He's done some things we've studied already that would be hard to imagine doing those things ourselves, leaving your family, leaving your your country, for example, and going somewhere new. But it's also true, I think, to say he's made some mistakes. His life is a mixed bag, really, of successes, failures, good, bad, steps of faith, and and to be honest, steps that don't reflect faith. And yet God wants Abraham to be a man who can stand for something very important. God called Abraham out from the world to follow him, and he's working with him to bring his life to a point where the life Abraham has of faith is a statement to the world about God himself. In the past, when Abraham has done what God asked, it was a nice reflection. And in other cases, when he fell short, it reflected negatively on himself. But God has decided that Abraham's life will be a testimony. And a certain testimony. And so in this chapter, chapter 22, one of the most prominent chapters in Genesis, certainly in Abraham's life, it really is a climax of sorts. It is a moment in which God decides he will test Abraham's true heart 
because after 60 plus years of walking with God, Abraham has still not yet demonstrated in his life the kind of testimony that God raised him up for. And so in chapter 22, let's look at the testing God does in Abraham's life. Chapter 22, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Well, let's try to set up the scene as God himself presents it in chapter 22. This is a, a scene that we're told is set after the events of chapter 21. This chapter retells events that took place probably 20 or more years, maybe even as many as 30 years after the events of chapter 21. In chapter 21, you remember, that was the chapter in which Isaac was being weaned, and that led to the conflict between Isaac and Ishmael and between Sarah and Hagar, and then Abraham was called to let Ishmael and Hagar go. So a weaning would have been a three-year-old or a four-year-old, maybe. In this chapter, we're going to see Isaac, though, as a full-grown, mature adult capable of carrying a heavy load of wood up a mountainside. At the very least, we know he's in his 20s. We can be safe in knowing that Isaac is not in his teens, and I say that because if he were a teenager, then asking Abraham to kill him wouldn't really be a sacrifice. (laughs) At this point, Abraham is seeing God appear now for the eighth time. Now, for those of us in this room who have never yet seen God appear, and that is, I'm sure, all of us, not in the way Abraham saw him, can you imagine having these kinds of occurrences to the tune of eight now? You might begin to think of your Abraham, this is standard for God. This is how we relate to God, maybe even to take him for granted. And yet when you see God appear here and he says, Abraham, and Abraham's only response is, here I am. In fact, in the entire chapter, that's the only thing we see Abraham saying to God. What Abraham seems to be doing at this stage in his life and in his walk with God is not take God for granted so much, but instead acknowledge God's presence so freely and willingly that he is already predisposed toward obedience. He's already predisposed to listen and act on what he hears. The surprise of hearing from God is no longer in view. Now it's more the expectation of what do you want? What a wonderful heart. A man who now hears from God and immediately is inclined toward action. God says, I have a test. I have a test for you, Abraham. Now a test from God is always the same thing in Scripture. It's always an opportunity to demonstrate faith. That's what the definition of test is in the Bible. An opportunity to demonstrate your faith. A test is not a temptation. It's not designed to cause us to fail. It's not an attempt to show our weaknesses. It's always the opposite. It's intended to let us succeed. It's intended or designed to show us as approved before God. Because it gives us an opportunity to demonstrate what we've learned, not only about ourselves, but about God, about his character and his nature and what we believe. Now, if we fail a test as God designs it, we do not blame the teacher, no more so than in real life. Right. When we fail a test in academia, we don't go home blaming the teacher. Well, some of us do, I guess, but only when it's their fault. 
let's assume for the moment the test is fair and in the way it's constructed. And if so, then we have no choice but to fault ourselves when the test shows us to be inadequate in some way. So as God appears to Abraham, he announces the test. You will offer your son as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Has any man been given a more difficult test of faith than this one? I dare say that if the test had been offer yourself as a burnt offering, it would have been easier than offer your son. And as if to increase the degree of difficulty even a little more, God announces the test with this special emphasis on Isaac's importance. He says, take your son, your only son, the one you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him. Now, God is demanding, let's be clear, because I don't want anybody to think there's some subtext here that changes the sense of this request. The request is as it appears. God is asking Abraham here to make a human sacrifice of his son. The very notion, I know, seems out of keeping with God's character. It causes us to question, is that what he really meant? Remember, in Abraham's day, there were many pagan religions practiced all around in this area and around the world. And those pagan religions commonly practiced human sacrifice, child sacrifice. So God was not asking anything more of Abraham here than pagan believers were willing to do in accordance with their own faith for unreal gods. Abraham's just being asked to do no more than the pagans would do. Of course, human sacrifice is wrong, and God has no intention here of actually bringing Abraham to the point of murdering Isaac. Remember, Moses opened the chapter by saying this was a test. It's a test. When we go to school and we have tests, tests are not real life, are they? If I was studying to be a CPA and I had to take a CPA exam, the CPA exam is not what I studied to do. I studied to become a CPA. The test is not the real thing. And similarly here, this is a test of Abraham's willingness to obey God. It doesn't require that God bring Abraham all the way to the point of murder in order for the test to be effective. So what do we imagine went through Abraham's mind as he hears these words from God in that moment? First, he must have been a little shocked and maybe more than a little. He must have felt tremendous confusion about the request. Why would God expect him to do such a thing? Because as God said, Abraham did love Isaac and of course, he knows God's promises to bring a nation through this son. So he must have questioned in the moment, how does this work? Never mind the fact that killing your own son must have been an unimaginable horror to contemplate going through with something like that. But the thing to remember is Abraham loved not only Isaac, but Abraham loved God, too. And so the question becomes, who does he love more? Does he love his son, the earthly son, Isaac, more, or does he love the God who called him, saved him, and delivered to him that son. And from what we'll read in this story, a man who has walked for something like 60 years now with this God who called him and has watched this God be faithful time and time again under circumstances in which Abraham must have assumed there was no hope but to have faith in God. He must have looked at the request and looked at the history he had with God and determined to do two things. To obey God's instructions while continuing to trust in God's promises. 
obeying God's instructions, but yet still trusting in God's promises. Genesis 22, verse 3, we hear what he does. He says here in verse 3 that so Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Everything about Abraham's response here just yells heart of obedience, doesn't it? Even from the fact that he gets up early. Of course, you might look at that and say, well, he just couldn't sleep. (laughs) That would be understandable. But he has everything here directed toward obedience. He has the wood chopped. He has his donkey ready to travel. We know that God has told him he will be going to Moriah. Moriah is a region that was some distance from here. So he's planning for a trip that will take three days. And he's packing up for that trip, taking two servants along with him. You know, three days is a long time to travel knowing you're going to kill your son. That's a lot of free time. It's a lot of opportunity for contemplation, isn't it? What kind of conversation do you think took place between the father and the son over those three days? What kind of things went through Abraham's mind? There's no indication here that Abraham has revealed the purpose of the trip to Isaac before they left, except that God has instructed that they should go and worship him and sacrifice to him on a distant mountain. So in the course of those three days walk, I wonder if there were moments along that walk where Abraham started to have second thoughts. Thoughts like, did I hear it right? Or thoughts like, will I be able to go through with this? Or thoughts like, I wonder if he'll find a way to stop me before I actually have to do this. I can't help but ask myself, what would I do in a situation like this? I think that's the natural response we have to this story it's to immediately put ourselves in abraham's place and ask what if could i perhaps a better question to ask is under what circumstances would you be willing to obey this command rather than ask yourself could i try to put in your mind what would god have to have said what what kind of circumstances would you have to have been in around or in in such a way that you would actually be willing to take a child and in the best thing I would recommend you do to feel the full impact of this is to picture one of your children. The one you pick is probably pretty revealing, but that's another story. Think to yourself, that person, picture them. I'm going to go kill them because God told me to. We know Isaac is the son God has deemed to be the son through whom the world would see the blessings he's promised. And Abraham knew that as well. But Abraham must have questioned, I don't understand how God fulfills these promises if my son dies. At least he must have had that thought initially. Likewise, if God had made promises to you concerning your family or just knowing the heart of God and you know this is not the way God operates and yet you're clear that he has said this to you, under what circumstances would you actually be willing to go through with something like this? The only way Abraham could go forward in obedience under these circumstances is if he assumes death is not the end of God's plan. That somehow God's promises concerning Isaac will not be interrupted or stopped simply by his death. That's the only way you can conclude to do this, right? You have to make this conclusion that death is not a barrier for God. It does appear to be to me, my eyes, my world experience, all that I know tells me death would be the end of it all. But somehow I'm wrong and God is right. And even though I don't understand... I'm going to obey while trusting in his promises, assuming there's some piece to this puzzle I don't have. Death can't be the end. 
The writer of Hebrews, when he comments on this moment in Abraham's life, draws exactly that same conclusion for us. In Hebrews eleven seventeen, he says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. What the writer says is that Abraham had heard earlier that Isaac was the one who would lead to many descendants. It was specifically Isaac. He had heard that from God. And yet God has directed Abraham to kill Isaac. So the writer says Abraham concluded the only thing he could in keeping with his faith in God's promises. He concluded God must be able to raise people from the dead. Because if it's going to be by Isaac, then Isaac's going to be alive to have kids. So my killing him won't be the end of the story. God is able to raise him from the dead. Abraham knew God's plans transcended our human physical life. He's already shown that, hasn't he? Remember, Abraham's been living in the desert now for the better part of 60 years as a wanderer, though he could have lived in a city and settled into a lifestyle that was more comfortable. He purposely, consciously chose not to do that. Because in remaining a wanderer, he was testifying to the world that he didn't intend or didn't expect that his inheritance in the land would come in his physical lifetime. That that reward that God has promised him would only be his in a future life, in a resurrected form, in a new world, not the one he could see and touch. That's what Hebrews told us caused Abraham to live as a wanderer. Well, if he's already got that mindset about the land, well, remember the promises God made to Abraham took largely two pieces. You'll have a land and you'll have descendants. Well, if he's already living in the world knowing the land won't come until he's resurrected, well, then when the order comes to kill his son, the other half of the promise, he makes the same conclusion concerning his son. I must be depending on God to resurrect my son and give me those descendants in the resurrected life. That's the heart of Abraham's test. Where did Abraham place his trust? In God's word, what he's been told, in other words, or in what he can assess for himself using his eyes and his senses and the world around him? Where was his trust? Was there anything in his life so dear to him that he couldn't give it up because he couldn't see past the here and now? Well, think about how ironic it would be if Abraham had denied God the sacrifice for the very son that came by virtue of a promise, of a, of, a, of a miracle, really. Wouldn't that have been ironic? The child God has given Abraham is the child by a promise which came despite the age of both Sarah and Abraham. And now God's saying, I just want him back. I gave him to you. Like what Bill Cosby used to say, I brought you into this world, I can take you out. Sort of in that sense, I guess. <laughs> Only God really does have that power. We've never been asked to make this kind of a sacrifice as a test of our faith. And I'm sure we all pray we never will. Those scriptures counsel is we should pray to be tested. But I challenge you that we are actually closer to this event in our everyday life than you may have considered. Because just as God gave Abraham a miracle birth and then later asked that miracle child, that miracle life, 
to be sacrificed back to him as a test of faith. He's done that to every single person in here. There was a day in our past when we sat in our sin, dead in our trespasses, and the Lord, by his grace, gave new birth to each of us. We were born again by the Spirit. We were made new in Christ. We lived anew, spiritually speaking. And that new birth came with promises. It came with promises of great eternal blessing and of being a child of God forevermore. But now the question becomes, are we willing to give that life back to God in the way that he has requested that life be given back to him in the case of Isaac? Paul says it exactly this way when he describes our responsibility and faith to the one who has saved us in Romans 12. In 12.1, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. That is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see the comparison to Isaac? Now that we've been given a new life by a promise, and it was a supernatural miracle birth, not one we could have ever done in our own flesh, that now has led God to turn back to us as a test of faith and say, I want you to give me that life back now. And the specific sacrifice he requires is different in a sense, than what Abraham was asked. Abraham was asked to take the physical life of his son. We're asked to take the life we lead now in the spirit and sacrifice it back to God. Not to conform to this world, not to live as the world would call us to live, but live as God would call us to live. And we transform over the course of our life as a function of study of the word and spending time in the spirit and various disciplines of the faith. We then transform into people that Paul says will prove, or another way to say it is, demonstrate the perfect and acceptable will of God. I like to use the term walking billboard. God wants us to become walking billboards in the world of what we learn in his word. And as we renew our minds in accordance with the truth, that billboard gets shinier and brighter and clearer to the world. Now, it's going to be a sacrifice to do this. There's no getting around this. This is not a cheerleader pep talk that says, rah, 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 run out and let's all be like Christ. If you've even tried to do that for an hour, you know there is sacrifice involved in that. First and foremost, in your own fleshly desire, it will be a sacrifice to live this way because we will be counter to the world in virtually every aspect of our living. And as we mature in that walk, I think you're seeing that now in Abraham's life. Abraham has done some remarkable things in faith, but he's made some mistakes, too. But after 60 years, God says, you're ready for a real test, Abraham, and he dials it up. Our life in Christ is a never-ending push toward holiness. That's the call of Scripture. But the Lord's demands will increase as we live and walk with him longer because he wants that billboard to get brighter. And Abraham has been given the opportunity to shine here through this command, this difficult test. And I want you to look at how bright his, quote, billboard becomes as a result of how he turns and obeys. Because the question is, will he? Will he sacrifice Isaac? Will we sacrifice what we want to serve God in the faith he's given us? By his obedience, 
Will Abraham display God's perfect will? Will he tell the story by his obedience that God wants to tell through his life? The billboard that God is trying to tell the world through Abraham's obedience is the gospel. In this story, the story of God commanding Abraham to take his son to the mountain and sacrifice him is the story of the gospel. What a privilege for Abraham. If he obeys this request, if he passes this test, he becomes a billboard that announces forevermore the message of the gospel at its core. Look at the details we've already studied so far. In Hebrews 11.9, the verse I quoted out of Hebrews a little while ago, it alluded to this fact. It said, when Abraham took Isaac to the mountain to sacrifice him, it says he received him back as a type. That word type means a picture or an example of something. Because Abraham was obedient in this test, the whole scene of him taking his son to the mountain to sacrifice him becomes an effective picture of this story of the gospel. Isaac is a type. He is Christ pictured by his life. And if Isaac is a picture of Christ, which we'll see more clearly here in a moment, then by extension we can say Abraham is also picturing the father here. At least in this way, in this moment, he is the one sacrificing his only son, as Hebrews said it, his only begotten son, which reminds us, of course, of John 3.16. Taking his son to the mountain to give his life up in obedience. Let's look at the picture as it moves forward and gets even clearer for us. In verse 4, on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes. And saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand. And took the knife to slay his son. After three days, they've walked now. They've reached the mountain. Or at least they're approaching. It's still at a distance, we're told. They can see it, but they're not there yet. The young men who have come along are now told, stay here with the donkey and wait. Father and son, we're going to go together the rest of the way. We're going to go alone from here. I think this explains, at least in part, why the other two men were brought along. Abraham must have anticipated he wouldn't take all of the material by himself, but on the other hand, he didn't want the donkey to be without anyone to guard it for the time they were away. So he has two men come to watch the animal. He says to them as he's leaving, we're going to go to this mountain over here. We're going to worship together. So for him, the entire episode here is one of worship. I don't think he's lying to these gentlemen. I don't think he's making this up to sort of hide what's going to happen. This is worship. Remember Romans 12, the the verses I just read out of Romans. Paul says, our life of sacrifice is a spiritual service of worship. It's worship to sacrifice for God. How do we sacrifice? How do we worship? We obey him. 
That's worship. Worship is obedience to God. By making a sacrifice in our lives, we demonstrate our trust in Him and our trust in His Word. That is worship. Isn't it interesting how worship has been reduced to the least of what it is in our world today? It's been reduced to an act of singing for some people or an act of participating in a weekly event. That's worship. Well, it's not wrong to say those are elements of worship, but it's the least of it. How many people attend a service or sing a worship song and then promptly disobey God left and right the rest of the week? No hands, please. That's not worship. Honestly, it's not. It's meaningless. If I had to choose between two people, one who comes to church regularly and sings loudly, but doesn't live the life God's calling them to live, or the one I never see in the building, but the other six, seven days of the week, they are faithfully serving God by their sacrificial living. That's the person God wants. I would argue that if you do that, you're also going to be inclined to worship with others because your heart will be inclined to want that. But the point is still the same, right? Abraham says, I'm going to worship because that's what this is. It's sacrificially obedience to God. That is worship. And it's also important, I think, to note that Abraham says he and Isaac will return. It's a simple statement, but it says a lot. It says Abraham did not expect, after all this was over, to be without a son. He says he knew God would remain faithful to his promise. And it also says Abraham trusted in God's word and his faithfulness and his goodness more than he trusted in his own understanding. If you want to credit Abraham and his life as a testimony to faith, as a testimony to someone who walks closely with God, focus on this moment, but focus more on the fact that he did something without understanding rather than in the fact that he did it willingly. It's easy to do something willingly when you got the big picture, isn't it? It's a lot harder to be a willful, obedient servant when you don't understand why you're being asked to do something. Abraham's obedience is not remarkable because he was willing to lose Isaac. His obedience is remarkable because he was so confident that death wouldn't take Isaac from him. And so the two then depart. And we're told Abraham gives Isaac the role of carrying the wood for his own sacrifice. Do you see the picture of Christ, of the gospel continuing to develop here in the details? Isaac is picturing the way Christ carried his own cross, his own wood for his sacrifice. Even the fact that they traveled there on a donkey invokes the scene of Christ riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. And as they walk, you have the wood with Isaac, you have The father carrying the knife and the fire. And scripture tells us that it was the father who offered up his son. As you see happening here. Now, the obvious question arises of this scene is a little comical if it weren't for the fact that it's such a dramatic moment overall. But you see Isaac walking with his dad and he's he's doing the math in his head. You know, he's he says, "Okay, knife, check. Fire, check. Wood, check. Whoa, wait a minute. Where's the lamb? Dad, hey, dad, lamb. Where's the lamb, dad? (laughs) Now remember, we're not talking about a toddler here. We're not talking about some, you know, six, seven, eight year old kid who is still fully under the control of the father, who, who the father could subdue if needed to force this outcome. Now this is a grown man and by the virtue of the difference in age, it's probably the opposite. This is a case in which Isaac could subdue dad. Isaac could out-wrestle dad if it needed to be. 
And he asked the question, where's the lamb? Even as he asks it, do you wonder, did he suspect something was up? Because you know you don't just find lambs all by themselves on the top of mountains. Not then, not now. And, and yet he's walking. He's carrying the wood. It's remarkable that not only is Abraham here depicted as faithful, but honestly, Isaac. Isaac may even trump his dad when you remember that he is the one who will have to lay on the wood. Abraham, we're told, as they reach the point of the sacrifice, he begins all the preparations. The most remarkable one to me is he binds his son. Now, even that tells us something about Isaac's obedience because Isaac had to submit to that binding. There's no other way to understand the moment. Isaac is not, as I said, a small child. At the moment, Dad says, let me tie you up, son. You know, he has a choice. But he stayed there and he received the binding. What a perfect picture of Christ. What a perfect picture of Christ. Christ went willingly to the cross. Willingly. He obeyed the Father's direction despite what he knew would be the pain and suffering of his death on the cross. And just as Christ was nailed to that wood, though he put himself there voluntarily in the moment in which the event occurred, he allowed others to bind himself to the wood. Similarly, Isaac allows the Father to bind himself. Not because he was unwilling, but because he was willing. I suspect that the binding may have been the Father's way to ensure that in the moment that the fire was lit, the Son wouldn't have a sudden instant reactive movement to jump away or just to hold him there in that last moment. And then verse 10, we reach maybe the climax of Abraham's life, at least as it's recorded in Scripture. He stretches out his hand with a knife. And I want to give you the right picture here because there's something going on here more than simply the killing. You know, This is not a slasher movie sort of moment like this. This is something totally different. This is a sacrifice. And the sacrifice was always done in a way that was intended to be uh, minimizing in suffering for the animal in the case of, of an animal sacrifice, but also with the intent to draw as much blood as possible to remove all the blood from the animal. So don't imagine the plunge of a knife. Imagine taking the knife to bring it across the neck, something that would result in quick death and fast bleeding. That's what he's about to do. He's, he's brought the knife down, not up. Were their eyes meeting in that moment? I mean, to try to imagine what was happening as he goes to that moment is beyond any parent's worst nightmare. And in that moment, his faith is fully demonstrated. Fully. No one who could witness this moment, if you had been there and we could have seen it in the moment, no one watching this could have doubted Abraham's faith in God. More than that, his behavior makes clear that he has utter trust in God. The Bible says this moment is when Abraham's faith was perfected. And that's a very interesting word in Greek. It has a lot of meaning. It, it means completed, brought to its purpose, its fulfillment. It does not mean this is the moment in which he had faith, for the faith he had was working to bring him to this moment. You don't come to this moment unless you have faith. But in his willingness to walk in faith to this point, Scripture says his life in faith was fulfilled. The way I like to say it is he is serving the purpose God had 
in saving him. He's fulfilling his purpose to glorify God, perfecting, completing his faith. James makes this point, as you may remember from a year or three ago when we studied the book of James, whenever that was. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 20, James says to the church, he says, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works And as a result of the works, faith was perfected and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Well, as you probably know, these verses carry some controversy because people don't understand them in their context. Sometimes we covered these in depth when we did our James study. So I'm hoping you'll remember how we approach this. To summarize, Abraham's faith, we're told, was perfected. It was completed. He was declared righteous already back in chapter 15, back when he had faith in the first place. He was declared righteous all the way back there. But James says that righteousness was fulfilled in this later moment, completed, perfected, brought to its fulfillment. If you look back on his life, I want you to just run through in your mind quickly all that we've seen in Abraham's life since chapter 15, since the moment he was declared to be a man of faith and therefore righteous. What have we seen this guy do? It's been a series of ups and downs, and I'll challenge you if you go back and look, it's mostly downs. Remember, his willingness to follow God out of Ur precedes chapter 15. So that's not even in view. Since chapter 15, we've had some lies. We've had him make another son with Hagar. We've had him fight with his wife over the willingness to let Hagar go when God asked him to. This really hasn't been a life that's a testimony to faith and obedience. I mean, the guy's done some good things. I'm not trying to take away from him. But what I'm pointing out is if we took chapter 22 out of Genesis, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about what a great man of faith Abraham was. It'd be a lot more complicated conversation. Wouldn't you agree? But the fact is, he had faith. The fact is, he was righteous by that faith. Those aren't changing whether or not we have chapter 22 or not. But what would change is our perception of that faith, our perception of him. The story of him would be different. And in that sense, his faith would have fallen short of the fulfillment God had in mind. Think of the billboard example one more time. It would be like someone put a cover over his billboard billboard still there so to speak the testimony of his faith hasn't gone away but he is walking in the world showing no one that faith and from god's point of view you could sum it up this way abraham i didn't save you for your own sake i saved you for my glory and until you fulfill the purpose i set forth in your life and in your salvation then the story is incomplete but i will test your faith I will make you put it on the line. I will make you act in such a way that no one after that point will ever be able to question whether or not you truly listen and obey. And if you do as you are asked, then your life will carry that story of my glory forward. Not just because you are shown to be a man of faith, but because in the very act of fulfilling this request, you will depict the gospel for the world. You know, that's God's purpose in saving each of us. And he doesn't necessarily need to use such dramatic means in everybody's case, thankfully. But he did not choose us. 
He did not bring us into faith and call us to be children of God on the basis of our merit, of our worth to him. As I like to say, it's not as though he looked around heaven and said, you know, heaven won't be heaven unless Steve is here. And we do matter to him. But we should always be seeking to understand how our life of faith will be perfected in obedience to his word so that we can glorify him in that way, because that's our spiritual service of worship. The question then is, in what specific way is he asking each of us to pass a test that lets our faith be perfected or come to its fulfillment or to its ultimate purpose? I mean, for some, it's the obvious thing of calling to be a missionary, to go and sacrifice the life and the ease they have here to be serving others in some foreign distant place. We have members of this congregation who have answered just that call and are doing so right now. But for others, it may be a call to leadership in the body of believers or to a life devoted in prayer silently outside the public view for the sake of those God lays on our hearts. Maybe it'll be a giving financially for the needs of the saints. Maybe it's going to be a service of teaching or of hospitality or of music or Maybe it's going to just be devotions to spouse and family with the intent to raise up godly children. All of those have equal merit. All of those can equally be considered the fulfillment of our faith and our life of sacrifice. Maybe it's a combination of all of those for some of us. But our role is just like it was for Abraham. To hear when the Lord calls, to answer, here I am, and then to obey. Sacrificially. Holding nothing back. Let's go out from today as we end our study, determining to hear, obey completely, but like Abraham, all the while trusting in God, regardless of whether we can see and understand the call he's placed on our life. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, I ask that the story of Abraham would be a story of inspiration for each of us. A story, Father, that inspires us to consider your words carefully as he did, but not so carefully that we work to outthink you, that we look for excuses that prevent us from obedience. I know so many hearts in here, Father, are are troubled by burdens in one way or another. And there are so many others who I think are calling out to you in a daily way. How do they serve you better? What is their test of faith? And it is often the case that the needs and the opportunities are so close to one another, we can't even see them. We look outwardly for opportunity, forgetting they may be the person sitting next to us. I pray you would help us see the needs around us, the needs that match to the call you've placed on our lives, and that you would give us opportunity to serve you, to call us specifically, to demand that our test of obedience would be met with a willing heart. I ask these things, Father, because we all know that if Abraham, the man of faith, needed a test, we must do as well. And thank you, Father, for a church in which these are the weighty matters that we spend our time considering. For the walk of faith, Father, is meant to be the challenge that it is. For the testing of our faith, Father, produces endurance, and that endurance, Father, leads to so many things that reflect glory on you. I pray that you would give us that opportunity on a continuing basis to be tested and to be found obedient. And bring us back next week. Hopefully, Father, you'd you'd add to our numbers so that we may minister to greater numbers and be ministered to by many more.
And help us always, Father, to keep your glory in mind as we obey you during the week as our spiritual service of worship. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And we'll see.